Who do you work for, really? Each one of us has a calling. Have you heard this before? Your workplace is your mission field, wherever that may be. You either work for him or work against him, but you work for someone. Who do you really work for? Is it your clients, your boss, your family, yourself, or your Lord? This isn't a trick question. There is a right answer. You're either all in or all out. Are you for him? I am. In fact, I work for him. Hey, Jim, who do you work for? I work for him. I work for Jesus Christ. I want to be your let me introduce you to the host of the I Work For Him show, Jim Brangenberg. Welcome, welcome, welcome. You've tuned into the I Work For Him radio show with your host, Jim Brangenberg. Take a minute and listen. I Work For Him, is, it's not a program that you sign up for. It's a mentality. It's a way of living. It's a permanent shift in your Christ-following paradigm. It's a revolution that's happening in the workplace, and it's about bringing the kingdom of God into places where the kingdom is ignored. Keep in mind that your existence in your workplace, it's not by chance. It doesn't matter what you do or where you do it. Whether you're a pastor, a car mechanic, an attorney, a teacher, a mom, a used car salesperson, your work, it matters to God. And he expects you to be his representative in your workplace. And in your workplace, to recognize that that's your mission field. And in that mission field, you may be the only Jesus your coworkers and employees may ever meet. Now, I know you've heard me say this tons and tons of times, but every day we need to be reminded that going to work is not just to draw paychecks so we can buy groceries. Going to work every day is an opportunity to be a light for Christ. Each day on the I Work For Him show, we try to bring you the practical, the tactical, the factual, and the biblical ways to incorporate your faith into your workplace. I don't come to you as an expert. I don't come to you as somebody that's got this all figured out. I'm just one guy trying to live my life transparently so that you can maybe gain something in order to be an effective witness for Christ in your workplace. Our paradigm shift is described like this. Romans 12.2, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Welcome to the I Work Ram Zone. I hope you're never the same. Welcome, welcome, welcome to this Christmas edition of the I Work For Him radio program. I am your host, Jim Brangenberg. We've got Todd T. Riley, engineer, in the show today. And we're going to do a little bit different take on the show here this Christmas day. You know, as I contemplated what I wanted to do, I decided that instead of it being anything about work, I really wanted to have the focus on family and really just doing something that we hardly ever do, just reading some really inspirational stories about Christmas. So yes, it's a little bit different than the typical I work for him zone, but I still want you to remember today as you're with your families, remember You may be the only Jesus your family ever meets. So spend that time with them. Enjoy that time with them. Enjoy eating with them and be the light of Christ to them in your home. The first story that I want to read for you is a story by Al Andrews called A Walk One Winter Night. It was cold that winter evening as I ambled down my quiet street. I needed a walk to clear my mind of all the clutter and stress of this season. It seems that every year it gets worse. More obligatory parties, irritated drivers, and panicky shoppers. Long lines everywhere. I remember a time when I was more expectant, when the reason for all of this celebrating meant everything to me. But sadly, this night, my internal monologue was, let's just get this thing over and get back to normal. Frankly, my cynicism troubled me, and when I'm troubled, I take a walk. 
even if it's near midnight, even if it's cold, even if there are still things to be done. The hour was late, and a light rain was falling. Stray flakes of snow twirled and mingled in. From windows and trees, the lights of the season sparkled through the heavy mist, like stars aching to beam brightly on this dreary, dark night. Turning up my collar, I pulled my jacket tighter. That kind of cold finds its way through most any opening. As I walked, I saw them out of the corner of my eye. Mary, Joseph, the baby Jesus, displayed in a wooden stable in someone's front yard. The usual characters were assembled as well. Shepherds, a sheep, a camel, and the wise men, three. On the stable's roof, a precariously perched angel looked on and was tilting slightly to the left. All of them were illuminated by two bright floodlights shining from the grass in front of them. I almost passed them by. They were, they were easy to miss, as I've grown accustomed to their presence. They are, after all, available everywhere in all sizes. Ornament size, mantle size, coffee table size, and yard size. They come in a box, easy to assemble. But that night, I'm not sure why, something caused me to turn my head, inviting me to linger. I stopped to look at them for a while, as one would stand in front of a Rembrandt painting in a museum. I must admit, it felt somewhat odd and awkward. After all, grown-ups don't pause and stare at yard manger scenes, but for some reason that night, that moment, I felt I should be there. To witness something. To see. I folded my arms and I looked. Obedient to this mysterious nudge, she wore blue. Mary always wears blue. A neatly pressed, clean blue garment, her face porcelain and untouchable, had a fixed expression, pleasant and peaceful. With her fragile hands folded in prayer, she gazed down adoringly at her child. She was perfect, this Mary, pristine, with moisture glistening on her smooth ceramic shawl. Joseph wore brown. Joseph always wears brown. Brown is a fitting color for character, relegated to the background, for someone who never gets top billing. His eyes appeared vacant. His beard was neatly trimmed. He was there as he always is, on the edges. He can't seem to find his place. Everyone else has something distinctive. Wings, crowns, gifts, halos, a shepherd's crook. But all he has is brown. Then there was the baby Jesus. His tiny arms extended the star attraction. A halo encircled his little head, reaching from ear to ear. A clean white fabric wrapped around him, swaddled, I suppose, is the appropriate Christmas word to use. He smiled an unearthly smile. He's always happy, the main, this manger Jesus. It looked like he'd never slept and never cried. It didn't appear that he wanted to be held, nursed, or cuddled either. I don't take the time I won't take the time to describe the others, but you know them well. You probably even know where each is positioned in the stable. The shepherds go there, the camels and sheep over there, the wise men there, there and there. I imagine you too are accustomed to their presence. I remain standing trying to stay warm, looking at them through the gazy mist. I pa I pondered. Looking at them through the gauzy mist, I pondered. I simply couldn't relate to them in any way. They seemed remote and untouchable, just like this season had become for me. With considerable guilt, I wondered, why don't I like these people? After this abrupt and irreverent thought came to me, I half expected the ground underneath to open up and swallow me whole, or a bolt of lightning to descend with a flash and a snap, leaving me a little pile of smoldering ashes that used to be me. I closed my eyes and waited for the end. Thankfully, neither the heavens nor the ground opened, so I continued my gaze. And then something happened. Something... I frankly don't expect you to believe. I heard a noise coming from Mary's direction. It startled me. Who's that? I said. Though her figure didn't move, a soft voice pleaded. This is not me, she cried. 
This is not real. And her voice broke. Please, listen to me. My garment isn't this clean, and it's not this brilliant shade of blue. It's a blue faded by the dust of a long journey to Bethlehem. It smells of my sweat and of the mule whose back I rode upon. My blue is stained with red, the blood of birth. It's soiled by the dung of a stable floor, and in my face, my real face, is blemished. I'm a teenage girl. My brow is furrowed from worry. Worry about this baby, about tomorrow. What will Herod do? Will he find us? And my eyes, my eyes are red from tears of pain. I'm so lonely and afraid. This is my first baby, and my mother is not here with me. This is not who I am, she said again. I am real. Please, let me be real. And her voice trailed off. Her words, both gentle and moving, reached inside of me so deeply. I could barely breathe, and while I was catching my breath, I heard a deeper voice. You're wrong about me, too. It was coming from Joseph's direction. This is not me. This is not real. Please, listen to me, he said firmly. I started to take a step backwards, but his voice riveted me in place. Listen, he repeated. Really, listen. I'm not the quiet, simple character you make me out to be. My eyes are not vacant. Hours ago, they were full of fire when I grabbed the innkeeper's tunic with a tight grip and said, Don't you tell me there's not some room somewhere. And he found a place for us. I'm a man with a purpose to travel where I was told to go, and to lead my family safely there. And we made it. Now that we are here, I am still on guard, for we are in danger. Joseph continued, Yes, I wear brown, but it is for stealth. I blend in with my surroundings, and from my vantage point, my eyes scanned every opening in this place for anyone who is out to do us harm. And no one will get by me. Let them try. I am the keeper of this light, and I will keep him safe. You're wrong about me. This is not who I am. I am real. Please, let me be real. His words soaked into me like the evening's mist. I felt admonished and awakened to something that was true. And then I heard a cry. I looked at Jesus in the wooden manger. He was thrashing about in the hay. He had soiled himself, and he looked uncomfortable. His cloth was twisted in his arms and legs. He grimaced from the prickly straw. His face was red, and his cry grew louder, the cry of a hungry infant. His toothless smile mouth His toothless mouth opened, and he arched his back. He cried so hard that he ran out of breath, and for a moment, it was quiet. But I knew it was the quiet before he drew another breath. And then he wailed so loudly, I expected the lights in the nearby houses to turn on and the neighbors to come running out. I wondered if he, too, would speak. But he didn't need to. Somehow his words were in me, and I spoke for him. This is not me. This is not real. Please, listen to me. The reason I came, the reason I was sent, was to be real, to feel everything you felt, to know everything you need, because I needed it too, to hurt like you hurt, cry like you've cried, laugh like you've laughed, skin my knee like you've skinned your knee, and have my broken heart like your heart has been broken. I came so that one day, or one winter night, when you come face to face with your defeat, your moment of absolute need, you can count on me, you can come to me and say, you know this too. Be with me and lead me through it, and I will. This is not me. I am real. Please, let me be real. Then there was silence, a long stillness that hushed the wind and pushed away the noises of the night. In the quiet, I was given room, room to feel and consider what I had just seen and heard. Out of the silence, the truth appeared like stars revealing by parting clouds. 
Maybe the figures before me weren't real because I had made them that way so that they would be predictable and safe, easy to ignore and boxed up after Christmas, out of sight and out of mind. Maybe if Jesus wasn't real, he would be tame and small. Maybe if I had rendered him untouchable because I was afraid of his touch. I'm sorry, I said. I know this isn't you. I could see it now. You're not who I've seen you to be, untouchable, perfect, something I made rather than someone who made me. You're real. You are true. You are here. I'm so sorry, I said. Again, as my eyes brim with tears, the sorrow nudged me to kneel next to a shepherd on wet grass in front of something so real, so very real, I couldn't even begin to comprehend it. As I knelt, I became part of the story, and the story became part of me, and I felt his gentle pardon. Suddenly, everything expanded. The scene, this night, my heart, and I felt real. After a while, I stood and remained there, quietly looking at them as they gazed back at me, and I realized something. I liked these people now, and I think they liked me. Shivering, I wondered if Jesus was cold, too, so I laid my scarf over his hands and his feet, the same hands and feet one day I would one day see again. I tucked him in as best I could. Good night, I said to him. Sleep well. You've traveled far. I, spayed, I stayed beside him for a few minutes, just as I once stayed beside my own newborn sons as they drifted into sleep. Then a low, regal voice came from one of the wise men. He whispered, as if he was aware that Jesus was sleeping. We, like you, were drawn to this place and have journeyed far to come here to see what you have seen. And what you have seen is what this world has been waiting for. And from a shepherd standing behind Joseph, I heard another quiet voice. Once you hear the angels sing, you will never be the same. If you listen carefully, they're always singing. And then there was quiet. No more voices. No more movement. No more surprises. I sensed it was time to go. I started to walk back to my house. The cold wind and a few flakes of snow urged me along. My pace was slow and thoughtful. This walk had become a journey. I didn't want it to end. Something had returned to me, and I yearned for it to remain. When I reached the corner of the street, I thought I heard singing and turned for one last look. In the distance, I saw a warm glow coming from a small wooden stable in a yard down the street, sheltering something inside that was older than the stars and bigger than our whole wide world. And it was real. We've been reading some Christmas stories, and we're going to jump back into another one. Just enjoy your time with your family today, and thanks for listening to the I Work For Him radio program. The name of the next story is Ollie by Robert J. Morgan. I'm going to tell you a story, just as my father told it to me, for I can still remember almost word for word how he related to me on Christmas Eve of 1963. We had finished dinner opened some presents, and put on our pajamas. Just before bedtime, as the last log was burning in the fireplace, I saw my dad walk over to the mantel. He took down the antique snow globe with its small nativity scene and turned the crank on the bottom. The little music box played Silent Night as the snow swirled around Joseph, Mary, and the baby in the manger. My dad was lost in thought until the music ceased. Then he turned and saw me watching him. I guess I looked at him quizzically, because he went on to recite a little poem I'd never heard before, as though he were explaining something to me. Silent, holy, calm, and bright, Jesus came to pierce the night. Jesus came to make things right, so be silent, holy, calm, and bright tonight. I didn't know what to make of it, so I did what most 12-year-olds would do. I asked questions. What do you mean, Dad? Where'd you get that globe anyhow? Where'd it come from? Well, he sat down on the floor, there in front of the fireplace with the snow globe resting in his lap, and he motioned for me. I sat down beside him, and he turned the thing over and showed me what was stamped on the bottom. Made in Germany, 1938. 
Then he put his arm around me, and this is what he said. Something interesting happened to me, son, when I was your age. When I was 12 years old, it was 1942. We were living in a little town called Evergreen, Pennsylvania, where my dad had a law practice. Well, that year was unusually busy, and my folks waited until the last possible day, December 24th, to do gift buying. It was about mid-morning when we drove downtown, plunged into the crowds on Main Street, and did all our shopping in one giant trip. Of course, there wasn't much shopping to do back then. World War II was going on, and things were hard to come by. That year, we just bought a few items for each other. My dad found a simple necklace for Mom. She bought him a tie and a pair of socks, and from the size of the package, I suspicioned that my gift was a new pair of shoes. We also found a red sweater for my grandmother. We loaded those gifts into the trunk of our 1938 Buick, which we'd left in the town parking lot. Then we walked back to the corner market, where we managed to find everything we needed for Christmas dinner. A canned ham, the only kind available in those days, some cloves and spices, baking potatoes, beans, and carrots, and then some flour, butter, eggs, sugar, and chocolate for a cake. I remember how relieved my mother was to find some of those staples. They were rationed because of the war, you see. After loading everything in the car, we walked down the street one more time and, and ate a late lunch at Evergreen Cafe. You can imagine our surprise when we returned to the parking lot an hour later and could not find our car. It was gone, vanished, along with our presents and all of our food. Someone had stolen our vehicle, and with it they had taken our Christmas. We spent the afternoon in the police station filling out reports, talking to the officers and listening while they issued bulletins, but it was useless. No one had a clue what had happened to our Buick. My folks were very distressed. The officers said they'd drive us home, but we said we'd just walk, as we only lived a few blocks away. But then it was late in the afternoon of Christmas Eve, and snow was flurrying. So down the street we started, wondering how we were going to celebrate Christmas with no presents and no dinner. Most of the stores had closed, and the shoppers had gone home. We passed the parking lot, and it was empty. Almost. There, to amazement, sat our car. It was on the opposite side of the parking lot. My parents looked at each other in confusion, and we all said things like, are we losing our minds? Did we forget where we parked? I'm sure we parked over here. Who moved our car over there? We walked over to investigate. At first glance, it appeared that whoever had moved our car also washed and cleaned it, for it looked newer and neater than before. But the thief had also cleaned out all of our gifts because when my dad opened the trunk, it was empty. We unlocked the doors, got in, and sat there in a fog. Finally, my mom said, Thomas, this is not our car. No, said Dad, it isn't, is it? But it looks like it. He turned the key ignition, and the engine started. Well, in those days, Detroit car makers had a limited number of keys and locks, and they were often interchangeable. I remember once my mother locked her keys in the car at school. Another teacher said, I own a Buick, too. Let me see if my key fits your car. And it did. So that explained why the key worked, but it explained nothing else. My mom opened the glove compartment and found the registration. She said, This car belongs to Alfreda Reinhardt, 508 Elm Street. I know her, said my dad. Well, at least I met her once. I think she's a bit daft. You know, not all there. Do you suppose she could have driven off in that car in our car by mistake? Well, I don't know, said Mom. I heard some ladies talking about her. It's a sad story. Alfreda is quite elderly. When she lived in Germany, her family was thrown into jail for opposing the National Socialist. She had a son, a daughter-in-law, and a little grandson, a boy of about 12 or so. Some kind of disease swept through the jail, and the whole family died except Alfreda. After she was released, she managed to leave Germany. Then she moved here to Evergreen, where her sister lived, over near the German Lutheran Church. When her sister died, 
Alfreda seemed to go senile. At least that's what they said in the beauty shop. Yes, and as I recall, she's deaf as a doornail, said my dad, and I guess that would explain things. Our cars look alike, the keys are interchangeable, and she must have gotten the wrong one by mistake. Let's go see. Well, this was turning into an exciting Christmas for me. A stolen car, an imprisoned family, a crazy old woman, and all of our Christmas presents hanging in the balance. It was an adventure. So off we drove, and ten minutes later we pulled into the driveway at 508 Elm Street. There was our car, all right, sitting in Mrs. Reinhardt's carport. We got out, peered into the car windows, and opened the trunk. It was empty. We rang the doorbell, and presently a little hunched lady opened the door. Her hair was thin, white, and disheveled, which was also a description of her. An old pair of glasses sat crookedly on her nose. She wore a faded blue sweater. On seeing us, she burst into joyous smiles. Guten Abend, she cried. Guten Abend. Come in out of the cold. Come in out of the snow. Right on time you are. Right on time. We stepped into the house. It was rather dark and drafty, but a small fire was burning in the hearth, and a little tree sat in the corner. Underneath it were some presents that looked very much like the ones we had bought earlier in the day. I also got a whiff of supper. It smelled like ham with cloves, along with potatoes, carrots, beans, and cake. On the mantel was a snow globe nestled among some garland. It took, I took it all in with a glance. Now give me your coat, Gunther, and you too, Elke. And the old woman, oh, how wonderful to see you. Frau Reinhardt, said my dad, clearing his throat, I've come to tell you you've mixed up our cars. Mrs. Reinhardt seemed to have trouble understanding, so my dad repeated himself. We've mixed up our cars. She looked perplexed. Was? she said. Our cars, said dad. Cigars? Yeah, I have cigars. Would you like one? No, no, my father said quickly. You always liked your cigars, Gunther, the woman said, shaking her head with a smile. I tried to keep them for you, but for after supper, not before. Yeah? No, no, what I mean is I think there's been some kind of mistake. Yeah, of course I have cake too, she said. No, no, Frau Reinhardt, said my dad, trying a third time. I'm afraid you're confused. My name is Vicar, Thomas Vicar. Something about that seemed to distress the old woman. Alfreda Reinhardt stared at my dad incredulously, a haunting look on her face, as if trying to comprehend. For some reason, we all sort of stopped breathing for a moment. Nine, she said. Again, my father said, Frau Reinhardt, my name is Thomas Vicker. Vicker. Nine, I have no liquor. I have cigars and cake, but no liquor, only eggnog. My dad was flab too flabbergasted to reply, but the atmosphere changed suddenly when the old woman smiled, showing yellow, unkempt teeth. Sehr gut, she said. Your coat's bitten. It's warm in here. Let me keep your coats. I've waited so long for you to get here. I've waited all afternoon. You're going to stay, aren't you? Of course you are. You've come so far. She started tugging at sleeves, and I noticed how my parents looked at each other and seemed to reach a kind of understanding. At any rate, they nodded to me, and we all unbuttoned our coats. Danka, said the old woman with a smile. She took Dad's coat and Mom's and laid them on the sofa, and that's when she spied me. I cannot describe the look that came into her eyes as she studied my face. Oh, Ollie, she said, hobbling near me. Her hand revealed a slight tremor as it reached out and caressed my hair. Oh, my Ollie, it has been so long. Look at you. Look how you've grown. Her eyes filled with tears as she pulled me into an embrace. She quivered with emotion, but when she released me, her face was glowing. Oh, Ollie, I thought I would never see you again. Come over to your Oma. And look at you, so happy and so strong and so big, you remind me of your opa. Her wiry arms encircled me again, and I felt her kissing the top of my head. I started to pull away, but I didn't. After one more, my Ollie, she turned abruptly and headed to the kitchen. 
Aber was denn? All is ready, she said. Elke, help me set the table. My mom obligingly found some dishes in the cabinet, and while Frau Reinhardt pulled silverware from the drawer, then out came the ham and the beans and the carrots, along with the German potato salad and some sauerkraut. The meal wasn't as my mom would have prepared it. It was sort of vinegary and mustardy, but it was all good, and I ate every bite except the kraut. All the while, Frau Reinhardt was talking, half in German, half in English, about family matters that didn't make any sense at all to me. Each of us tried to contribute to the conversation, but it seemed lost on the old woman. Her hearing was gone and her mind nearly so. But her heart was warm and she kept the conversation flowing all by herself. She spoke of long-ago days, recalling happier times with Dietrich, her husband, I gathered, and with her son Gunther, who had apparently been a bookkeeper, and his wife Elke. Occasionally, she said something that seemed funny to her, and she laughed and laughed, and we laughed along with her. All the while, she kept stealing glances in my direction, and whenever she did, her eyes sparkled. A couple of times, I winked at her, and she seemed as delighted as a girl caught under the mistletoe. After the cake and the coffee, the eggnog never showed up. We relocated to the parlor where Mrs. Reinhardt went right to the tree and started handing out gifts. There was a simple necklace for my mom, a tie and socks for my dad, and a pair of new shoes for me. It was all great fun. Then my mother handed the last remaining package to the old woman. Frau Reinhardt opened the present and clutched the red sweater all to herself with motions of delight. After the cake and the coffee, the eggnog was never showed up. We relocated to the parlor where Mrs. Reinhardt went right to the tree and started handing out gifts. There was a simple necklace for Mom, a tie and socks for Dad, and a pair of new shoes for me. It was all great fun. Then my mother handed the last remaining package to the old woman, Frau Reinhardt. Frau Reinhardt opened the present and clutched the red sweater to herself with motions of delight. Oh, danke, danke, it's wunderbar, she said. But the most wonderful thing is that to have all of you here with me. Then she lowered her voice almost to a whisper and said, One night in that awful place I was so frightened, especially for Ollie. I had forgotten what time of year it was. All was so dark and so dreadful. Everyone was so sick. And then, from somewhere down the hall, I heard another prisoner singing, Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. And I recalled that it was Christmas. And that night in the jail, I remembered a little poem we used to say on Christmas Eve. Silent night, holy, calm, and bright. Jesus came to pierce the night. Jesus came to make things right. So be silent, holy, calm, and bright tonight. And that's when I knew that everything would be all right. Someday, somehow, some way, some place. Perhaps not now, but then. Perhaps not here, but there. She was quiet for a moment, but the next thing I knew, she was on her feet again and headed to the fireplace. She picked up the snow globe from the mantle and shook it in our direction, saying, Except for the clothes on my back, this is the only thing I brought with me out of Deutschland. She wound up the music and it played Silent Night. We listened and it seemed like music from far away and long ago. No one said anything for a long time. Then the old woman suddenly looked very tired and said, Well, it's time for bed. Oh, it would have broken my heart had you not come. But here you are, and my Ollie has come to wish his Oma a Frau Weinhochnachten. God bless you for it, my son, my grandson. 
I nodded as best I could. We rose, put on our coats, and moved toward the door. Vait, called the old woman. She picked up the globe and brought it to me. You must have this, Ollie, she said. It's the only thing I can give you from Deutschland. And you must take it, so you'll always remember that God looked into our globe and saw our grief. We look in his manger and see his answer. Well, I looked at Dad, he looked at Mom, and she looked at me. I took the globe from the woman's hands and sat it on the floor and gave her the hardest hug I'd given anyone in my life. Then I picked it up carefully and ducked out the door because no one wants to see a 12-year-old boy get the sniffles. I heard my parents exiting behind me, saying things like, Gute Nacht and Auf Wiedersehen, and after exchanging cars in the carport, we drove home in silence. We visited Frau Reinhardt several times afterward, but she didn't seem to know us. The spell was broken and her mind was gone. Shortly afterward, a small item appeared in the local paper. Frau Alfreda Reinhardt, 88, formerly of Munich, died at her residence on Elm Street yesterday with her parish priest in attendance. She was preceded in death by a husband and a sister, a son, a daughter-in-law, and a grandson. Well, that's the story as my dad told it to me. But he wasn't quite finished. He went on to say, and that's why, son, every year since I have been your age, I picked up this old globe on Christmas Eve, turned it over, wound it up, and listened to its music. And as I see the snow swirling around in the manger, I think of the night my folks and I were able to give an old woman her family back for one last Christmas Eve. And I remember her poem and her words, and they are true. The good Lord looked into our globe and saw our grief. We look into his manger and see his answer. And that's why Christmas is silent and holy and calm and bright. For a long time we sat there in front of the dying fire, saying nothing. I might have gotten the sniffles if my dad hadn't told me that no one wanted to see a 12-year-old boy do that. So I finally got up, yawned real big, and headed to bed. After all, I didn't want to oversleep on Christmas morning. Good night, Dad, I said. As I headed toward the bedroom, I turned back and saw him gazing again at that glass ball filled with water and wonder. Good night, Dad, I said. Again. Sleep well. He smiled and waved me on to bed. Good night, Ollie, he said. You sleep well, too. And that ends the story by Robert J. Morgan, called Ollie, here on this Christmas, 2014. The next story we're going to read is called Five Quarters of a Mile by Robert J. Morgan. The old man had never seen such weather. The Appalachians were blanketed with enough snow to bury the mountain roads, not to mention the cow paths snaking along the hills and the sheds tottering in the fields. Life was at a standstill. Even the snowbirds huddled away in unseen burrows, unwilling to break the stillness of the foreboding freeze. Old Zeke arched his feet and stood on his toes, looking through the top pane of his kitchen window. The snow had drifted to eye level, and he was anxious. He didn't mind being alone in the mountains, but he didn't like being trapped here, not one bit, especially with his feeling poorly and his being responsible for his six-year-old. Zeke had enough food in the cupboard and enough firewood on the hillside. That was no problem. But if something happened to him, well, he was stranded, and that's all there was to it. Stranded with a young child in an old house and the two of them practically buried alive in a snowstorm, the likes of which he'd never seen. Zeke Miller, short for Ezekiel, he guessed, though he'd never been anything but Zeke, lived in an unpainted frame house in the head of a hollow, five-quarters of a mile from the nearest two-lane road. There wasn't a neighbor within hollering distance. Until now, that had been just fine. Zeke took a liking to people well enough, but he liked being alone, too. 
His wife was long gone, swept away in the flu epidemic of 1918. He raised Lawrence by himself. Now with Lawrence working up north, Zeke was keeping his grandson Adam until better times came. Adam was a chip off the old block. He loved the mountain like his grandpa did, and Zeke figured one day he'd inherit the old farm. They were buddies, the two of them. They hiked on the mountain every Sunday for church, every Wednesday for groceries, and whenever Zeke had some produce to sell. Zeke grew vegetables at 40-degree angles on the mountain slopes. He had a small herd of goats he, he milked for money. But he'd long ago given up the cow, the horse, and the other critters, except for an old hen that lived under the porch of his little cabin. He was getting tired and didn't want a lot of things to look after. Reckon we're stuck here, sure enough, Grandpa, said Adam, climbing onto the kitchen counter and peering through the top window. Reckon Pa ain't going to make it home for Christmas after all. No, boy, ain't nary a chance. Wish he hadn't gone off like that, said Adam for the hundredth time. What with Ma dead and all, I wish he hadn't gone north. Wish he'd just come back. Wish wish he'd be here for tomorrow, for Christmas. But I reckon he ain't going to come, is he? Well, boy, you know he's a-trying, said Zeke. Wishing's good, but it don't make things happen. This depression, son, it's wonderful bad. There ain't no work here. No way to make a living. I told you that afore. Your dad's got hisself a job up there in Ohio, and he's sending us money every week. That's why you got shoes in your feet. Now he's going to be here if he can get hisself here. That's for certain. But this snow, son, this is a true, honest-to-goodness blizzard. That's what it is. Now you fetch me a match, boy. It's getting dark, and I reckon we best light a lamp. Adam scrambled off the counter and ran to the matchbox on the wall. I'm getting cold, Grandpa, he said, returning the match in hand. Yeah, me too, Adam, said the old man, striking the match and lighting the wick of an old lantern. The clock on the wall struck five times, and Zeke, glancing at it, thought of a supper. After I fetch us some more firewood, son, I'll stir up some grub. Just look at that wood box. It's about near empty again. I just filled it at lunchtime. Reckon I best try to fill it up before it's plumb dark outside. I'll help you, Grandpa. No, boy, you best stay in. Too cold for a child to be out of doors. You'd nigh freeze to death. You listen for me, and when I holler, you open the door real wide and let me back in. I'll have my hands full. Zeke old boots, cracked with age, sat by the door, and he took him. It took him a while to stuff his feet in them and lace the strings. He shoved his arms into his tattered wool coat, then pulled his cap over his thick gray hair. When he opened the door, a freezing gust rattled the house and made him shudder. Ducking outside, Zeke banged the door behind him and trudged through the dusk toward the woodpile. He knew why the firewood was burning so quickly, and it bothered him. The wood was too dry. He'd been stopping at the upper end of the woodpile and carting last year's wood back to the house, and it was so dry it burned like paper. The box by the stove emptied as fast as he filled it, but the wood was lighter, and Zeke was having trouble carrying the heavier wood. That worried him. He'd always worked like a horse, and even at 76 he was hale and hearty, or so he thought. He'd been gathering firewood for seven decades, and he knew fire logs like a scholar knows history. But something was wrong, and Zeke felt winter in his bones. Two days ago, he'd had a spell while shoveling snow from the path that led to the woodpile and onto the house. The pathway was critical. We don't have to go to town, he explained to Adam. We don't even have to go to the church house. But we do have to get to the firewood and down to the outhouse. Those are the important things, the firewood and the outhouse. Got to keep a path open or we'll be in real trouble. But his path clearing had exacted a heavy price, and Zeke had been sick to his stomach and sore in his chest ever since. His arms felt weak, and he winced with a catch in his lungs. His breath was labored, and as he trudged to the woodpile, he tried to veer down toward the newer wood, but his feet slipped beneath him, and he found himself standing at the upper end, where he selected an armful of drier, lighter wood, 
four sticks, and that's just about it. He couldn't lift another piece. Approaching the house, Zeke took a deep breath and called as loudly as he could, Adam, open the door! The pain struck his chest like a bullet, hitting him point blank, slicing through his flesh into his lungs, through his heart. His legs gave way, firewood tumbled onto his head, and he tried to break his fall with one hand, clutching his chest with the other. The dusk turned to darkness, and a paralyzing cold fell on him like an avalanche. Watch the path of your feet, and all your ways will be established. Do you run your business day to day without much thought to planning? The Lord has a plan for each one of us. He doesn't float from day to day, playing it by ear and making it up as he goes along. He is the God of order, systems, and processes. Of course, we don't have God's ability to see the end from the beginning, but if we want to follow his example by establishing and maintaining order in our businesses, we can still look ahead and make plans. Take one business quarter as a starting point. Establish three meaningful goals that will have a major impact on your business over the next 90 days. Write them down and communicate them to your staff. When everyone can see the goals and direction of your company, morale will improve and a sense of purpose will be created, even in difficult circumstances. Follow God's example, establish your plans, and watch your business improve as your goals are achieved. Proverbs 4.26, watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Somewhere in his unconsciousness, Zeke felt he was drowning in a frozen lake, high in the mountains, swimming upward towards the ice that covered the surface. Finally, he broke through the water and through the ice and opened his eyes. Adam peered down at him anxiously with red eyes and a face as white as snow that surrounded him. What happened, Zeke asked, wincing as pain shot through him like circuits of fire. You fell something awful, Grandpa, said Adam. I like to never have pulled you through the door. How long ago? Asked, said Zeke, struggling with every word. He tried to lift himself onto his elbow, but he couldn't. How long have I been like this? I might spell, said Adam. I've just been a sitting here beside you, but Grandpa, the firewood's nearly gone and it's getting mighty cold. Zeke lifted up his head. It was dark now, the only light being the flickering flame of the oil lamp casting deep shadows that quivered on the walls. Suddenly, the gears on the old clock moved and the striker hit the coils. One two, three, and on to ten. Ten o'clock and cold. That firewood you brought, I got it out of the snow. I've been putting it on the stove, but it's gone now, and the fire's about out. I reckon I'd best go and get us some more wood. No, said Zeke, wheezing and speaking with labored breaths. No, Adam, you can't. It's too dark, too bad, and cold. Might not make it back. If you get lost, you'd freeze yourself to death. But, Grandpa, there's a path. You dug it for us. You can't go out there, said Zeke. The woodpile is too far. It's icy. You might fall, might not make it back, get lost, too dark, it's too cold. But, Grandpa, we're going to freeze in here. we got to keep the fire a-going. Zeke's head dropped back onto the floor. The pain was running down his arms, but the boy was right. If the fire went out, they'd freeze before morning. But if the boy went out, he'd freeze before midnight. Zeke closed his eyes and prayed for help. Adam, he said at last, Adam, burn the kings. What, Grandpa? Those three kings over there, go get them. Throw them out of the stove, one at a time. Go on, you got to do it now before the fire goes out. Adam glanced to the large nativity in the corner of the room, shrouded in the shadows. Each piece was made of hickory and was about a foot tall, about the size of a piece of firewood. Zeke's grandfather had whittled the pieces out many years ago, one per winter, until the entire set had been finished. The wood was well-seasoned and heavy, and was the closest thing Zeke had to an heirloom. For many years, he'd made a little display in the corner of the flower bed during Christmas, but this year the snow had come early, so he hauled the figures from the barn and set them in the corner of his little room. 
Grandpa, you love those old kings. We can't burn them. Zeke, grimacing with pain, lifted himself onto an elbow and looked the boy in his eyes. Now you listen to me real good. You take and haul those kings to the stove and throw them on the fire one at a time. You got to do it, Adam, right now before the fire goes plumb out. Without another word, Adam obeyed Zeke, sunk back onto the floor and drifted in unconsciousness. The next time he opened his eyes, the clock was striking 12 times, midnight. Adam was curled next to him asleep. The old blanket spread over the two. Using one hand, Zeke shook the boy. Adam, wake up. Adam, you got to tend the fire again. What's that, Grandpa? Adam, throw the sheep on the fire. Do it now, Adam. It's getting colder. Adam rubbed his eyes, rolled over onto his feet, padded to the corner, and like a heartless shepherd, threw the innocent lambs into the stove. Arranging them with a poker, he watched a few minutes as the wood slowly caught fire, casting off a heat that baked him in delicious warmth. At two o'clock, the three shepherds went into the furnace, one at a time, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but without a fourth man to deliver them. When the clock struck four, Zeke again shook his grandson awake, this time to throw Joseph onto the fire. Fortunately, Joseph was a portly fellow of unusually hard hickory, and it took him a while to give up the ghost. But by six o'clock, it was Mary's turn to be consigned to the flames. By seven o'clock, the sun was coming up, but it was a bitter morning, and the fire was nearly out. Into the stove went the manger. Now only the Christ child remained, like a lone figure lying on the floor in the corner of the room, the sole survivor of the night's holocaust. Adam fetched some bread and milk, and Zeke nibbled it before giving the final order. Adam, he said, throw baby Jesus in the stove. But Grandpa, just do it, Adam. Adam loved the baby Jesus, and this Christmas he had plucked him off his manger every day to hold him and play with him. Jesus was smaller than the other figures and easier to manage. His figure was so personal and lifelike, and the expression on his face was so strong and happy. Adam opened the door, and as carefully as he could, trying not to burn himself, he placed Jesus on the hot coals. The poker remained propped against the wall, for Adam knew he couldn't jab at this piece. The baby's eyes peered back at him from the glowing enclosure of the old stove, lying not in the manger of hay, but on a bed of embers. Sorry about this, Adam whispered, closing and latching the door. It was done. The flames started to lick the wood like a serpent, and soon Jesus was ablaze in the flames of, an old, of the old stove. Adam felt a tear slide down his cheek as he turned away. He ran to his grandpa, still lying on the floor, buried his face in the old man's chest and cried, not only for Jesus, but for his grandpa, whose face had never seemed so old or wrinkled or gray. It's going to be all right, said old Zeke, lifting his hand to stroke the boy's hair. Baby Jesus is going to save us. You just see. Just think of the heat and the light he's giving right now. Zeke closed his eyes and his hand rested silently on the boy's hair. Zeke's next conscious thought was hearing the gear of the clock wind up to strike again. This time he was unable to count the strokes, and when he tried to open his eyes, his vision was blurred, but he felt linens around him, a mattress under his bones, and a pillow beneath his head. A large hand seemed to be squeezing his own, and a deep, familiar voice fell in his ears. About time you stirred, Pop. Get those eyes a yearn open. I'm heating you some goat's milk. You know how that settles your stomach. It's Christmas Day. Adam, fetch me that glass of milk for Pop. Zeke felt a hand lift his head and the glass touched his lips. He took a sip as best he could. The voice continued, I've been here a while, but I walked back down the highway and sent for the doctor. He'll be coming directly, I reckon. You're going to be all right. I got the fire going real big. It's nice and warm in here, and you'll be fine. Zeke opened his eyes a little wider and tried to speak. A soft smile flickered, then faded on his weathered face, and he closed his eyes to rest a spell. After Christmas that winter, I returned with my dad to Ohio, leaving my grandpa under the deep midwinter snow of his Tennessee mountains. His old place lay dormant and abandoned for many years, but not forgotten. Now I've returned, 
for my life has come full circle. Many winters have passed since that cold Christmas long ago, but I often relive that never-to-be-forgotten night, five quarters of a mile into the hills, when the Christmas story went up in flames and the Christ child perished in the fire to save my life. Five Quarters of a Mile by Robert J. Morgan. And now the Christmas story that brought us Christmas. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, in a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel said, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, But how can this happen? I am a virgin. The angel replied, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy. He will be called the Son of God. Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said come about me. Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. Then the angel left her. At that time, the Roman emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for the census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him a Mary his fiancée, who was now obviously pregnant. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her first child, a son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. That night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them, Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David, and you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. Suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and peace on earth to those whom God is pleased. When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, Let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. They hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph, and there was the baby lying in the manger. After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. All who heard the shepherd's story were astonished, but Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. It was just as the angel had told them. You've been listening to a special Christmas edition of the I Work For Him show right here on Inspiration AM 1110 WTIS. I'm a Christ follower. I own my own business. But I serve the risen Savior who was born on Christmas Day. Merry Christmas. You're listening to the I Work For Him show with your host, Jim Brangenberg. I'm a Christ follower who owns my own business, but ultimately, I work for him.